On WealthTrack, why investment legend Bill Miller has gone really big on Bitcoin. I think the average investor should ask himself or herself, what do you have in your portfolio that has this kind of track record, number one, is, so, is very, very underpenetrated, can provide a service of insurance against financial catastrophe that no one else can provide, and, uh, and can go up 10 times or 50 times? The answer is nothing. Why Bill Miller has gone big on Bitcoin is on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. This week is part two of our interview with legendary value investor Bill Miller. As longtime WealthTrack viewers know, Miller has been a guest of ours since our launch in 2005 and doesn't do many TV interviews. As he told me recently, time is his scarcest resource. So we are delighted that he is with us again this week. Miller is the founder, owner, and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners, a firm he founded in 1999 while working at Leg Mason, but took over completely in 2017. As most of you know, Miller holds the unbeaten record of beating the S&P 500 for 15 consecutive years from 1991 to 2005 with the Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust Fund. His flagship Miller Opportunity Trust Fund, which he created in 1999 and has co-managed with Samantha McLemore since 2014, has $2.4 billion in assets and has had many market-beating years interspersed with some sizable declines. But today's conversation is not about Miller Opportunity Trust, it's about his personal portfolio. And here's the headline, half of Miller's personal net worth is in Bitcoin and a few other cryptocurrency investments, and it's leveraged. I asked Miller why he has gone so big on Bitcoin in his personal account. I'd say it's a combination of, of, of things as it would have to be to allow something to get that big a part of your portfolio because you know, it's, it, it goes against many of the tenets of, uh, of uh, financial discipline. Um, on the other hand, the, the people that actually are the richest people in the country all are massively concentrated, you know, Buffett and Berkshire, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. So they're not, they're not widely diversified. They may be, they're, they're highly concentrated. And I think that's because they have a high degree of confidence or, or have had a high degree of confidence in the, in the value of those investments. But my, my thinking here was that um, you know, I, I heard a talk on, on Bitcoin given by the person who's known as Patient Zero in the Bitcoin world, Wences Casares. And um, Wences gave a talk at, at the Allen Company Sun Valley Conference, and he let off his talk, this is 2014, I want to say. Uh, he let off his talk by saying that, asking how many, anybody owned Bitcoin, no, nobody in the audience owned it, except for him, and did anybody know what it was? And a, a few scattered hands went up. And he said, well, let me explain to you um, why I own Bitcoin. And he said, and it's because I, I understand why you wouldn't understand it, because you all live in America. And you have a rule of law, and you have uh, you know, orderly governments. And in most, in most times, you have you know, low, relatively low inflation and a prosperous economy. And he said, but I'm from Argentina. And my family's been there 150 years. And we've been wiped out four separate times by the Argentinian government seizing our assets, nationalizing the banks, inflating us out with hyperinflation. And he said, so Bitcoin can't be touched by the government. 
It's a, it's a peer-to-peer, decentralized, independent network. It's a ledger that records every transaction that's public. It's immutable. And he said, so the government, if you have Bitcoin, the government cannot take it away from you. And he, he said, so it's, it's an, it, think of it as an insurance policy. And he went into it and talked about it. And I thought, you know, and he talked about putting 1% of your liquid net worth in Bitcoin. And I thought that was sensible. He laid out what it, what it could do if it worked. He, he said then that it was very risky because then it was about $200. But I, I, I bought some then and I bought a little bit more over time and it became $500. And then I stopped buying it. And I didn't buy it for years until just the spring of this year. It hit a $66,000 high price. And then in four weeks, it was in half. Now, Bitcoin has gone up on average 170% a year for the last 11 years. Now, but that's not every year, it's just an average. It's gone down three different times by more than 80%. So that's, that is you know, a very volatile and therefore very dangerous, if you're, especially if you're levered as you can be if you're on some of these exchanges that'll loan you 50 to one on, on your Bitcoin. But um, each time it's been stopped at around the 80, low 80s level and it's come back. And this, year, this time I started buying it again at $30,000 down from 66. And my reasoning was, there's a lot more people using it now. There's a lot more money going into it in the venture capital world. There are a lot of people who are skeptics who are now at least uh, trying it out. And, uh, and I thought maybe 50% maybe is a good stopping point for it. But if it goes back down 80 or 85, I'll buy it all the way down. Well, it did stop right around 50% and slowly started its way back up again. But I, I bought a fair amount uh, at, you know, at the $30,000 range and have been adding to various Bitcoin-related uh, investments since then. So uh, there's a company that, you know, that we own in, in, our, in our income fund called Stronghold Digital, which is a Bitcoin mining company where the CEO owns 35%. It looks like they could make you know six to eight dollars in a couple of years, and they're a very low cost miner of Bitcoin, and the, all their energy that they're using, the electricity usage, is all renewables, or or uh, it, it gets credits for cleaning up abandoned coal mines. So it's one of those things that um, uh, I mean, as much as I like Bitcoin, you know, I've I've added a bought a strong stronghold in here and own it also via the fund as well as MicroStrategy and some other companies. So it's an insurance policy? Is that how we should look at it? I mean, number one, you don't live in Argentina. <laughs> you do live in a country you know, with, uh, with a rule of law, and uh, I'm not sure the dollar's really a stable currency, but it certainly just holds its value. Somebody else could you know, create another Bitcoin. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not governed by any rules, rule of law. So you know, why such confidence in it as an investment, aside from the fact that it certainly has worked really well and more people are kind of jumping on the bandwagon. There's several different, several different ways to approach that. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that right now, it's, it's best thought of as digital gold. So it's gold is, as people have said, a store of value for 5,000 years. Right. And gold is what people typically fled to when the governments tried to uh, you know, inflate them out. And in the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt confiscated everybody's gold in 1933. You had to turn it in or you went to jail. So they can't confiscate your Bitcoin because there's nothing, if you hold it securely, as long as you have an internet connection, you can, you can send it somewhere instantaneously at very low, very low cost. And the reason, I, I, the reason I, I, I like the insurance company analogy is because if you think about, people talk about the intrinsic value of Bitcoin, this is a Warren Buffett argument, that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, it doesn't have any earnings, it'll never pay any dividends, 
Uh, and so, so how do you even think about something like that? It, it is a new technology. It's something that couldn't be done before. But in any case, the, the answer that I have to that is, well, I mean, what's the, what's the intrinsic value of that Mickey Mantle baseball card that sold for $5.5 million? It's just cardboard, and it, it doesn't even have a legend. It could be counterfeited very easily. Uh, or what's the intrinsic value of a Picasso painting, which is just canvas and paint uh, and uh, you know, maybe a frame? But people will pay millions or tens of millions of dollars for it. And it, so it comes down at the very basic level for supply and demand. So Bitcoin is the only economic entity where um, the supply is unaffected by the demand. So even with gold, if gold, which is $1,800 today, if gold goes to $18,000, there will be a lot more gold mined because mines that are unprofitable will, will become profitable. And so gold, which, which accretes today, the production of gold is about equal to about 1.5% to 2% of the total value per year. And that's the same uh, accretion that Bitcoin has currently. Uh, that, but this year, 2022, I think, will drop below 1.5% on that. So only, only 21 million Bitcoin can ever be created or close to it. It doesn't matter if Bitcoin is 100,000 or, or 20 million. There's only going to be that many of them. So... Um, all you have to really believe is that the demand for Bitcoin will grow faster than one and a half percent, you know, over the next number of years, and the price inexorably will go up. So I've, I've only recently been allowing myself to be described as a Bitcoin bull. I, I used to tell people, they said, oh, you're a Bitcoin bull, you, you own a lot of Bitcoin. I'm like, I do own a lot of it, but I'm actually a Bitcoin observer, and I'm observing its trajectory as a new technology and comparing it to the trajectories of things like uh, the printing press, or the steam engine, or the railroads, or the automobile, or electricity, and, and it's following that very, uh, uh, not, not predictable, because it's not predictable certainly in the early, early days, a well understood path for the adoption of new technologies. And you know, Stan, I think it was Stan Druckenmiller uh, said earlier in the year that, and, and, and now he owns Bitcoin by the way, um, but he said that Bitcoin was a solution in search of a problem. And what I've found amusing about that is every new technology is, is a solution in, in search of a problem. Because you, you have a new technology, then you try and figure out what you're going to do with it. And so, you know, when, you, when we created the Internet, what are we going to do with that? So uh, the Defense Department had, had use, good uses for it, but it was tough for other, other people to see. And, but now everybody can see what the value of the Internet is. Same mm -hmm. thing with the internal combustion engine, which was very dangerous and all, but now that's taken over the world, and now we're going to move to, to electricity. So all kinds of technologies have to grow into their, uh, grow into their potential. And Bitcoin is, I guess if you want the theoretical answer to the question, is that's the work of Brian Arthur, Santa Fe Institute, and, and Stanford, who is kind of the leading authority on what, what he calls increasing returns economics and what he calls lock-in and path dependence in the economy. So his basic idea is that when technologies reach a certain dominance, and they're the, they're the leader, it's almost impossible to dislodge them, even without a very superior technology. And Bitcoin's there? Is that what? That's, that's, what, that's what I would say I and the other bulls believe. Okay, but why the outsized, why 50% of your personal net worth? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you're, the other 50% is in like middle value funds, or I, I don't know how you've diversified. And Well, actually, actually, close to the other 50% is in Amazon. All okay. of the rest of the investments that I have are, ba are basically there to support margin debt. Because I always, I'm typically always on margin, which means I can take a lot of volatility. Now I'm not obviously on uh, 
deadly margin. I'm under using regular Reg T margin, and I've got a fair amount of margin capacity. But the rest of the, all the stocks could eliminate all the margin debt and have a fair amount left over, and then I'd have those, those if I had to sell all those to pay off the debt, then still have Bitcoin and Amazon. Bill, can you explain to me the concept of Bitcoin as an insurance policy? There's 21 million shares of this insurance company outstanding. And every day that somebody wakes up and says, you know, I, I need some insurance in case something, you know, in, in case the government seizes all the gold like they did back in 1933. Or, in, you know, when, when Afghanistan, we pulled out of Afghanistan, um, Western Union stopped remittances. So if, if, you, if you couldn't get money, uh, and it's still hard to get money in Afghanistan, uh, you were in d serious trouble. Uh, in Lebanon, the lira has completely collapsed. Venezuela is a failed state. And yet Bitcoin uh, continues right along. That was your insurance policy against financial catastrophe of one sort or another. And what did the Fed do when the pandemic shut down all parts of, uh, or threatened to shut down all parts of the economy? The, the financial markets came unglued and the normal relationships between uh, uh, cash and bonds and securities, especially asset-backed securities, got blown apart. And the Fed had to increase the money supply by 25% to keep those things from collapsing as they did in 2008. Right. During that time, the Bitcoin network functioned perfectly. There was no run on it. There was, you know, prices went down initially until people figured out, wait a minute, we've had a tr tremendous collapse here and the Bitcoin uh, uh, blockchain is functioning without, a, without, a, without any interference at all. So I think that, that explains it, I think, in a way that many people can understand. If you want a little bit of financial insurance, then you know, buy a Bitcoin or, or a part of a Bitcoin. The argument I get most often is, why not gold? Right, which is considered to be an insurance policy against catastrophe historically. So the, an the answer to that is, um, in my opinion anyway, uh, gold has gone from, effect been around 5,000 years, so it's gone from, let's call it, make up a number and say a, a dime, a nickel mm -hmm. in today's, uh, parlance. And in 5,000 years, it's gone from a nickel to $1,850. And in 10 years, Bitcoin has gone from a nickel to $57,000. So why would I own gold? Especially since gold in the last 10 years has gone down. In the last 10 years, Bitcoin is the best performing asset category in the world. So you recently marked 40 years in the investment business. And you know, how, have, how has the investment business changed as far as your approach is concerned? And how have you changed? How have you evolved over the last 40 years? The investment business is, of course, radically different from what it was 40, 40 years ago when I got, got involved in it. That one major difference is interest rates at that point in time were the, in the United States were the highest in U.S. history. And now they're not just the, high, the lowest in U.S. history or close to it, but for most countries in the world, the lowest in 5,000 years. So complete radical transformation of the fixed income markets. Uh, in 1982, when we started our, when I was at Lake Mason, we started our mutual fund, the Value Trust. The amount of money, and I'm going from memory here, the amount of money in actively managed mutual funds in the entire country was around $70 billion. And at the peak of our assets in the, in the Value Trust and, and Cognate institutional accounts, we had $78 billion, so more money than was in the industry at all when I got, when I got into it. Um, and, but what, what hasn't changed is that, that human nature hasn't changed, fear and greed haven't changed. And most importantly, we understand a lot more than we used to through the workings of uh, social psychologists and behavioral finance theorists, 
how large numbers of people behave under certain circumstances, well-defined circumstances. And one of the things that we know, and it's been proven over and over again, uh, is that the coefficient of loss to gain is two to one. So a dollar's worth of loss in the market is twice as painful as a dollar's worth of gain is pleasurable. And as Warren Buffett often says, uh, fear is contagious and spreads rapidly, and confidence only returns slowly one person at a time. But what that means is when you have very dramatic negative events, that people tend to overreact to them, and that those are, you know, they're rare, but they're perfect buying opportunities. But I think those, those are the principles that can be, that aren't going to be changing, and that's why you can read Jesse Livermore's Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, or the, Ben Graham's The Intelligent Investor, and, and profit from it, even though the markets are, are very, very different from when, when those books were published. Have you changed your approach at all, or yes, is it? Yes, I mean, I, I would say I was a pretty conventional value, Ben Graham value investor, Warren Buffett uh -huh. aficionado, which I still am, by the way. Um, but I was much more focused on accounting-based metrics and PE, price to book, price to cash flow. And those metrics, as, as Ben Graham observed toward the end of his life, um, were having less and less predictive value because the economy was changing and technology was becoming more important. Uh, Graham didn't have any idea how important it would become, but it was still becoming more important. Um, and I think that when we had a bad period in the market from roughly from, I'd, I'd say, the late 1986 to the fall of uh, 1990, we had a bad, we, we underperformed the market for the first time in 1987. But we got, we got into the market right after the crash. We had a lot of cash because it was very expensive at the time relative to interest rates, exact opposite today. Um, but when the market crashed, we sold all of our cash and bought stocks. And so we were the number one performing fund in 1988. But then 1989 and 1990, the recession happened. We owned a lot of banks and that, that hurt us a lot. And finally, I, I, I began to think through what the, the theoretical literature and what the value investing empirical literature uh, taught and concluded that, that, um, that those accounting-based metrics were, as I later said when explaining why uh, Amazon was a value, that there's a reason that they're called generally accepted accounting principles and not divinely inspired accounting principles or immaculately conceived accounting principles. So companies, you know, if you bought, if you bought the old Telecommunications Inc. run by John Malone, so when, when he became the CEO of that company and had you bought the stock and you held it for 25 years until he sold it to AT&T, what would have happened would have been $1 invested in that company was worth $900 25 years later, and they never, ever reported a profit. But they clearly created a lot of value. And so we focused, I focused, and got our analysts to focus much more on where is the value creation? Is there any value creation here? And how enduring is it? And then how do we, how do we understand how to incorporate what we think the growth of value is into our assessment of the company? That's a major change. Putting it differently, putting a lot more emphasis on the future and what it could look like than on the past and what it did look like. One of the biggest criticisms of you throughout your career has been, um, yeah, he's got spectacular results, but it's, it's way too volatile, way too risky. How do you, um, you know, answer those criticisms or, or those concerns about the volatility of investing with you? I, I think basically that my, my uh, response to that is that, that Achieving lower volatility than the average or achieving low volatility is not the objective of investing. It might be a psychological objective for people because their, their psyches don't like to see them losing money because the coefficient of loss is two to one. 
but the objective is to make money or to even for active managers to outperform the market, which I've done in every fund that I've done over the past you know, 30 years. There's been volatility, but you know, people focused, uh, I, I think, both rightly and wrongly on the 15 consecutive years where actually the volatility, mainly because of, of uh, some things that we got, fortunately got right and got lucky on, but the volatility was below average and the returns were above average. So every quantitative model said, this is, you have to own this fund. And then when it came, when 08 and 09 came and the fund was down way more than the market, that, that rendered all of those model predictions uh, 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 wrong. And then people thought, oh, well, you know, that, that it's a different kind of market and they can't make any money in it. But actually the record of the Opportunity Fund, which we've run, you know, for 25 years, I mean, from the market uh, low in March of 09 through the end of uh, last year, and actually it's, uh, I haven't, we're having a, a, a subpar year this year, but that's mainly because Amazon's having a subpar year and, and for some other reasons. But we, we were in the, at, at one point, I guess at the end of 2020, we were in the top 1% of all funds for the year to date, the one year, the three year, the five year, the seven year, and the 10 year period, which is a far better record than the Value Trust had by beating the market 15 consecutive years. So it was, it was the case that we had some you know, down, down year in 2011, and we had a, a, a poor year a couple other times, but the overall results were actually better than that 15 year streak. They just weren't as consistent. The issue that a Morningstar addresses, for instance, is that do the shareholders in your fund uh, have the full experience of, of your track record and that they don't because of the downside you know, volatility? How do you feel about that as far as the shareholders don't stick with you so they don't benefit from you the way they could? Yes, well, you know, I, stuff that I can't control, I don't worry about too much. So if, people, if people's psychology is that they're chasing performance, so they wait until you have several good years in a row, then decide it's, it's fine to get in, and then you have a bad year, and they sell it, and they've, they've basically bought high and sold low, well, that's, you know, that's a recipe for bad economic results. Uh, what we have told people is that if you're not prepared to stay with us, we've got a lot, you know, we, we now have a very long history here, so, um, and you can see what, you know, how we've, we've done in various periods. But the easiest thing to do is to take the declines, which will happen every historically every four years or so, Peter Lynch used to say, but now the big declines maybe every eight to 10 years, and understand that A, they will happen, B, you can't predict them, but when they do happen, have enough, at least fortitude to stay with it, but even better, put some money in when, once they go down, once the market goes down or fund goes down 15 or 20%. And so and the easiest way to do that is to set up a plan, and you would know this, Consuelo, of dollar cost averaging. So as the, as the fund does well, you buy fewer shares when the market is more expensive and you buy more shares when the market is cheaper. So your, your average cost per share is lower than the fund's average price per share. So you will actually outperform uh, uh, somebody like me who you know, put, puts the maximum amount of money in and let, just lets it sit there because I'm, you know, I'm not putting money in every month. And well, I am in a 401k plan, but not, not enough to make a big difference. Dollar cost averaging, again, going back to one of those wonderful investment disciplines. Bill, so what's the, your one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio? Well, I'd have to say Bitcoin, because very few people own it. Uh, if you put 1% of your assets in it for diversification, um, you can afford, even if it goes to zero, which I think is highly improbable, but of course it's possible, um, you, can, you can always afford to lose 1%. 
that I think the average investor should ask himself or herself, what do you have in your portfolio that has this kind of track record, number one, is, so, is very, very underpenetrated, can provide a service of insurance against financial catastrophe that no one else can provide, and, uh, and can go up 10 times or 50 times? The answer is nothing. So perhaps you should have some of this. And certainly, if you own any gold, you should have, you should have some of it. But 1%, but I think, is, is, is prudent and, and sensible, and, um, but I think will do very well for people. Bill Miller, great investor. Thanks so much, and congratulations on 40 years in this uh, business, which has certainly been a wonderful experience for you and for people who stay with you uh, as investors. Now, thanks so much for those very kind words, Consuelo. And, and I always enjoy being on your show, and I'm happy to come on anytime you'd like. Thanks, Bill. At the close of every wealth check, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is keep an open mind as an investor and pay attention to portfolio managers who do. The world is changing. It's going digital. How businesses operate is changing as a result. Traditional ways of doing business are being upended. There are numerous new technologies being created. Digital currencies, decentralized finance are part of these trends. They are going mainstream. Educating yourself about these products will make you a better investor. Next week, Morningstar's personal finance guru, Christine Benz, joins us with her annual checklist at the top why a reassessment of retirement planning is in order. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Bill Miller discusses why he is giving the Santa Fe Institute a $50 million gift. In the meantime, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. Thank you.